Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Welcome to this podcast of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Climate One brings together thought leaders from around the world to advance solutions to global warming. The Commonwealth Club is a nonprofit, nonpartisan forum open to the public. Join us online at CommonwealthClub.org. The United States is about to set a cap on carbon emissions and enter into some form of trading of carbon emissions. Could cap-and-trade be the best route to controlling those emissions? Is carbon exchange politically feasible in the United States? How does it compare to a carbon tax? We're here to answer these questions with our panel of experts who will break down the details along with your questions. Tonight we have Eileen Tutt, the Deputy Secretary of Climate Change and Environmental Justice at the California Environmental Protection Agency. Josh Margolis, the Co-Chief Executive Officer of Cantor CO2E. And Lawrence Goulder, Professor of Environmental and Resource Economics at Stanford University. Please give our panelists a warm Commonwealth Club welcome. Larry, let's begin with you. Uh, If you could just give us sort of your summary definition and explanation of what is carbon cap-and-trade. Well, cap-and-trade is an alternative to conventional regulation as a means of controlling or reducing emissions of greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide. And it's touted as an approach which is, because it's more flexible, it's an approach that allows you to achieve the reductions in greenhouse gases at lower cost than conventional regulation. Under typical conventional regulation, uh, the regulating authority, whether it's uh, the Air Resources Board in California or the federal government, uh, they might mandate particular technologies that firms have to introduce to reduce emissions, require the installation of certain kinds of equipment. Under cap-and-trade, it's different. It allows a lot more flexibility, and as a result of that flexibility, it can lower costs. The way it works is basically this. There's two steps. First, the uh, regulator issues a certain number of emissions permits or allowances where each allowance entitles the holder to a certain amount of emissions of the particular greenhouse gas within a specified amount of time. So depending on how many allowances are put in circulation, that's going to determine how much total emissions are going to be allowed. That's the first step. The second step is to allow different entities who have these allowances to trade the allowances. And that's the key to getting the cost down, and that's the key difference between cap-and-trade and conventional regulation. By trading, you can get the cost down in the following way. Uh, if you're a, a firm, let's say an electric power plant, and you're holding a certain number of allowances, but it's especially costly for you to keep your emissions down within the limit implied by the number of allowances you have, it might be profitable for you instead to purchase some additional allowances from some other entities, and therefore you're able to emit a little bit more. And then symmetrically, those entities, say a different uh, entity like a refiner, say it's particularly cheap for it to reach its, uh, to keep its emissions down within its limit. That refiner might find that it's advantageous for it to actually sell its allowances rather than, and thereby have to cut back even further. Now, of course, that obliges the refiner to cut back even further, but the proceeds from the sale, the revenues that it would get by selling some of its allowances, would more than offset the additional costs that are implied. So what you have is the buying and selling of allowances, and the net effect of this is that those firms or facilities or sources that can cut back most cheaply will end up doing most of the work. They're the ones that are going to end up uh, uh, selling a lot of their allowances. And those entities for which it's relatively expensive to cut back on their emissions, they're going to end up buying more allowances. 
the net effect is that society ends up getting the emissions reductions done by those groups or those firms that can do it most cheaply. That's advantageous to both the buyer and the seller. They both save money. And it's advantageous to the public as a whole because now California or the western states or the, or the U.S. as a whole, depending on the size of the cap-and-trade system, it ends up achieving the emissions reductions at lower cost because those firms or entities that can do it most cheaply end up doing most of the work. Thank you. And Eileen Tut, you're an environmental regulator with the state of California. Do you agree with that? And it, it, both President Obama and Governor Schwarzenegger have backed this cap-and-trade system. So why are regulators now backing this market-based system? Well, I, I want to point out that a cap-and-trade program is a form of regulation. It is, it is definitely there is a hard cap, and emitters must meet that cap. So we do promote cap-and-trade as one of the tools to reduce emissions of, of global warming emissions. And part of the reason for that is that global warming emissions are global in nature. So if a ton is reduced in, by an entity in New Mexico, for example, that benefits California as much as a ton reduced in California. So it's okay for us to trade with New Mexico because our environment benefits as a result of that. Now, that said, it's, it's, not the, it's not the silver bullet. It's not the panacea. We still need directed regulations, some combination of direct, directed regulations and a carbon market. It's not an either-or. It's, it's both, and they work together to achieve the goal that we're looking for, which is uh, the maximum reductions of carbon emissions at the least cost. Okay. Thanks, Eileen. Uh, Josh, tell us a little bit about uh, there are carbon markets out there now. Some are mandatory. Some are voluntary. So what are the size of these markets? Who's, who's trading carbon now today? The size of the markets. Uh, we, we see markets in the northeast, in the northeastern states, the, the um, New England and uh, the mid-Atlantic states. We see markets in the European Union. Um, and uh, we see markets that are evolving in California with a mandate of the Global Warming Solutions Act of 2006. We see states that are from Florida to Oregon to Washington State, New Jersey, that are mandating uh, caps on emissions that, uh, we, where markets will follow and greenhouse gas regulations will follow. Um, in terms of the size, um, we're looking at markets that have grown fairly dramatically, $11 billion in 2005, $30 billion in 2006, um, 116 billion in 2008, uh, projected 550 billion by 2012, and a trillion dollars in, in uh, 2020. And these are both voluntary markets, markets where people are voluntarily reducing their emissions um, with the idea that the shareholders want them to, with the, the insurers want them to. Uh, folks who are buying products would rather buy green products. But there are also mandatory markets where the, uh, the, 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 uh, regula the regulated entity, industries, utilities, manufacturers find themselves under a cap, and they have an option of reducing their emissions on site by changing their fuels and the processes or by buying allowances from somebody else. Um, and in terms of the types of reductions, the folks who are participating here in California, we see people who are making reductions on uh, who don't have to. Nobody's telling them to do so. They're doing it because they, they believe that they can get a benefit out of it um, by going to a lagoon that's uh, on a dairy, uh, capturing the methane that comes off of that, that lagoon, turning it, cleaning up the gas, turning that gas into uh, electricity, um, using it to, to make power. Uh, we see it from folks who are changing f fuels and processes, um, uh, switching out from coal to natural gas, from natural gas to electricity. Um, and uh, so we see uh, creative juices around the world directed at turning waste streams into profit streams. And I want to get to some of those opportunities and some of those motivations later. Um, so let's, let's take, I'm uh, uh, reminded of Schoolhouse Rock and remember you know, how a law becomes a bill. Let's take a hunk of coal in Appalachia and sort of walk it through from, from, from the ground to, uh, to a power plant where, it, where it's burned uh, and there's electricity generated. Half of the electricity in the United States comes from coal, very little in California. Uh, so let's take a hunk of coal in the ground and it's dug up and it's burned for electricity and someone flicks on a light switch. How is cap-and-trade going to affect those three points? If I may, I'd like to get to that, but I'd just like to amplify one thing that Eileen said, or two things. One is that you know, cap and trade does indeed put a firm overall cap on emissions, 
There's only so many emissions allowances put in circulation. So the buying and selling of allowances does not increase the total amount of emissions. It just affects who ends up doing more or less of the emitting. Sometimes cap-and-trade is considered a right to pollute, as, as if it's something wrong in that respect. Well, it's not an unlimited right. It still does reduce emissions. And the other thing is I, I firmly agree with Eileen uh, when she indicates that cap-and-trade isn't necessarily the only way to go. In California, it's a part of the proposed way to try to reach its targets, and similarly at the national level. So the important policy choice is how much of the reductions you want to get through cap-and-trade versus through other things like efficiency standards. Now, in terms of your question, uh, let's suppose you introduce cap-and-trade at the mine mouth for coal. That effectively means that there, isn't, there can't be quite as much coal supplied into the economy because associated with coal are the emissions of carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. The restriction in the supply of coal means that coal prices are going to go up a bit. That then means that the electric power plants that burn coal are going to face somewhat higher prices for coal, so electric power prices will go up a bit as well. And that, in turn, means that consumers, industrial consumers, as well as residential and commercial consumers, they're going to pay somewhat more for electricity. So ultimately, what happens under cap-and-trade is that you introduce it in one part of the economy, but it implies effects on prices throughout the economy. Now, that, on one hand, might seem like a very bad thing. After all, we have higher prices. But on the other hand, what it's doing, it's helping the prices of goods reflect the full cost to society, including the environmental cost, the climate change cost. So it's encouraging consumers to, find, uh, to conserve electricity. It's, it's, it's encouraging uh, uh, drivers to find cars that aren't going to use as much conventional gasoline. It's, it's encouraging uh, industrial uh, firms to uh, find alternative ways to produce that conserve on fossil fuels. So this way of filtering through the prices is actually a way of encouraging conservation throughout the economy, and that's the key to getting the cost down in terms of reducing emissions. And what would be the cost to the average American of, of cap-and-trade? That's one of the main arguments against it. It's going to hurt people in the pocket, but how much? Well, it's going to depend on how stringent the policy is, and that means how many allowances or permits you put in circulation. If you put a huge amount of allowances in circulation and don't require much reduction in emissions, then the cost is less. If you, if you actually have a very stringent policy with few allowances in circulation, the allowance prices will end up being high and the cost is more. Perhaps a good reference point would be uh, the Waxman-Markey bill, which is now the centerpiece of discussions at the federal level. And that would end up uh, requiring approximately by 2020 about a 25% reduction in emissions of greenhouse gases relative to what would be the case in the absence of policy. And that would end up uh, costing the economy, the estimates differ, but something like a half a percent of GDP. Depending on your perspective, you might think of that as a lot or a little. It ends up being less than $100 per household per year. Interesting. Okay. And, and if I could weigh in on that, I think that cost is, the cost in this case is a very relative term because what happens under a cap-and-trade program, particularly one that is balanced by direct regulations, is that we see new innovation and, and cost savings through innovation. We see energy efficiency and cost savings through ener energy efficiency. And beyond that, the, the part that is often left out of this kind of question is, what is the cost of doing nothing? What if we don't combat climate change? What is the cost of the sea level rise of saltwater intrusion of our delta systems in California and Florida and elsewhere in the country? What about the cost of, the, of forest fires and heat-related deaths? Those are the kinds of avoided costs that, 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 that don't get taken into, into account when all we talk about is how much more are you going to pay for electricity? And so I, I just want to add that sort of frame of reference, because I think it's important whenever we talk about costs that, that we look at both sides, because there are definitely costs to our petroleum dependence. There are costs to doing nothing that probably go beyond what most, most of us are, are capable of really thinking about at this point in time. Okay. And while we're talking about costs, let's also focus on how uh, encompassing and broad the challenges in front of us. We, we talked about flicking on a switch. 
it's, it's flicking on a switch. It's stepping into your car. It's deciding to take an airplane trip across the country. Um, the, the, in thinking about the, the Waxman-Markey bill, uh, in terms of the numbers that we're expecting to see, business as usual emissions, emissions that would have occurred in the absence of regulation, I understand, were projected to be 10.3 billion tons. Now, we're all responsible for a part, part of that, 10.3 billion tons. Now, if in terms of the, the point of where we're trying to get to, you know, just for uh, uh, the emission reduction, is going to be about 2 billion tons, between 1 and 2 billion tons. So we're talking about an 80-plus percent reduction that we're going to have to achieve. And this is while we're growing the population, we're growing the vehicles miles traveled, uh, we're growing the number of miles, uh, trips that we take across country, uh, and we're we're pursuing uh, our economic goodwill and and, and living to the point where we're saying there is no carbon constraint up until this point. The the challenge here is is to make sure that we all understand we're part of the problem, that our population is growing, that our economic activity is growing, that it's a huge challenge to get from point A to point B. Our uh, our 1990 emissions, 6.1 billion uh, tons. So we're going to reduce our emissions by more, compared on the business as usual, by more than we actually emitted in 1990, by 8-plus billion tons of emissions. That's a huge challenge. So it's in terms of considering policy, where we need to get to, we have to first understand the magnitude of that problem. And only when you understand the magnitude and who is contributing to the problem and who can participate in the solution, do you understand that we all have the ability and the responsibility to solve that problem, and we have to do it with the, in the most cost-effective fashion. And you, you mentioned cost. Do you agree with Larry that the cost would be about less than $100 uh, per person? Because there's a lot of business voices out there, opposition, saying it's going to cost too much. We can't afford it now during a recession. You deal a lot with, with uh, corporations. Do they feel that these costs are acceptable at this point? And do you agree with the magnitude that Larry mentioned? Uh, well, I do represent businesses, but I'm also a father of two. Uh, I have uh, a generation uh, uh, that I'm looking forward to, and I have a responsibility to them. I, I listened to the scientists. The scientist has spoken quite clearly that we have a problem. We're approaching a tipping point. The economy uh, that we're looking at, at current rates of growth, will double in size in, in, in just 14 years. So w- while we're hurtling down the path, I, I recognize and I listen to the scientists. I understand what they say. I believe that they have uh, described a tipping point and outlined a tipping point that I just don't want to reach. So that leads us to if you're going to solve the problem, let's do it in the most cost-effective fashion. Uh, I do believe, for example, that um, it, what, how much we're going to spend depends upon the design of the program. Professor Goulder uh, eloquently described emissions trading in a way that I just want to capture that and, and put it on my website and say this is how it works. But there are, it's like describing art. Your vision of art is different than anybody else's vision of what good art is. Uh, you're, if you think the Kandinsky is, is a beautiful picture, maybe I think the Monet is a beautiful picture. The picture of the, the cap-and-trade program that Professor Goulder laid out is not necessarily shared by a number of other folks who are debating this point, and how it ends up could increase the cost by quite dramatically. So let's discuss those. What are the, what are the differences, the design elements? You know, this is thing is still very much in, in formation. Do you want to elab- what, uh, outline some of those areas of uh, difference? The cap. First of all, there has to be. A, we do recognize there has to be a firm cap, but we all agree at that point, up until the point that its price gets too high, then there's a temptation to say, well, if it gets too high, let's increase the cap. Maybe the price gets too low. Well, let's have a floor in the price and then make sure the prices aren't too low. Then it's a matter of describing how the allowances, how these permits are issued. Should we, make, should we start everybody off? We put 100 years of steel in the ground. Let's start everybody off at zero. Nobody can emit anything anymore until they buy permits from the government. And then the government will take that money and they'll spend it wisely. Right? And, and that's how the, the, the resources are going to be spent that are going to be raised through the auction process. Or alternatively, we can gradually take away the emissions from the sources over time, as what was done in the acid rain program and in the, in the reclaim program and in the Houston mass emissions cap and trade program and in the, the lead refining program, which took lead out of the gasoline. So how these, uh, these allowances, these permits are issued, whether they're auctioned by the government and everybody starts from zero or they're gradually taken away from industries over time. 
Josh Margolis is the co-chief executive officer of Cantor CO2E. We also have Eileen Tutt, deputy secretary of climate change and environmental justice at the California Environmental Protection Agency, and Lawrence Goulder, professor of environmental and resource economics at Stanford. We're at the Commonwealth Club discussing carbon exchange 101. Professor Goulder, do you want to elaborate on, on that design question of, of who bears the cost and how quickly this thing is ramped up? Sure. Uh, I think that uh, I, I, I heartily agree with Josh saying that uh, so much depends on the details of design that can make a big difference to the cost. I'm not sure we're, in entirely, we're entirely in agreement as to what are the ideal features. Um, Josh mentioned two elements that I picked up on. One is uh, whether you might want to, in some sense, put a ceiling price on the allowances so that if, uh, if, the, price, if the market price of allowances gets too high, you start uh, introducing into the system more allowances to, to, to prevent it from getting any higher. Uh, that's often called the safety valve. You could also have a floor on emissions prices. Uh, to be brief, I favor both the ceiling and the floor because I think price volatility could be a real problem. We have seen some real price volatility in the European emissions trading market. So I think having a, a ceiling and a floor actually makes sense, particularly a floor because to the extent you can make sure that the price of allowances never goes below a certain level, that provides a strong incentive to, inv to investors, potential entrepreneurs, in alternative technologies, because now they know what they have to compete against. So I know this is controversial, and uh, many would say you shouldn't tamper with uh, the emissions trading market in that way, but I tend to favor it. The other issue was uh, how you introduce the allowances, and as Josh indicates, one option is just for the... Uh, for the government to auction out all the allowances so that basically every entity, every, every potential firm, has to buy every allowance that it has. The alternative is to give out some of the allowances or all of them free. I tend to favor relying primarily on auctioning, uh, but perhaps a little bit on free allocation because uh, firms like free allocation. It's very valuable to them. It's less burdensome to them if they can get some of the allowances for free rather than have to buy them, buy them all. But if you were to have all of the allowances issued free, I think that would create big windfalls. Uh, we've seen that, in fact. In the European Union's emissions trading system within the last two years at its inception, they uh, issued all the allowances free. And despite some academics saying this is going to create windfalls, uh, that was done. It turns out it did. It created very big windfall profits to the firms. If you want to protect profits, you only have to give a small share of the allowances free, and I think that's all that should be done. Okay, so you're for a price floor and a cap, a price ceiling, and for for auctioning. And where are you, Josh, actually, on, on the floor and the cap? On the floor and the cap, it depends in part upon the rest of the design features. For example, if the government is the recipient of all of the monies that come into the program through an auction program, and if the government decides to spend those monies in ways that are not related to climate change, and if they put them towards well-deserving causes, such as hiring more teachers, building more bridges, paying down the deficit, all of a sudden the resources that we have that industries have to solve the problem are diminished, which increases the cost of solving the problem. So on the, in terms of auctions versus allocations, I believe that I should train my industries who were arrived at the starting line of this marathon. They arrived at the starting line with the idea that there was no cost to this carbon activity, this carbon emitting activity, and all of a sudden somebody said, rules have changed. Right? We're going to wean them off of that. We're going to gradually take away. We're going to allow them to invest in year one through 20 through 30 and, and say, if I do X, Y, and Z, if I change my fuels and my process and I reduce my emissions over time, I can sell the rights that Professor Gould had described to somebody else. Alternatively, if, they're taking from the, if you're paying the government that money, then we have to uh, rely upon the government to do the right thing. And in fact, in that matter, though my website is emissionstrading.com, I'm more uh, akin to the idea that a well-designed carbon tax is better than a poorly designed cap-and-trade program. Agreed. And by the way, if, if it were up to me, I would push auctioning 100%. But it's more of a concession for the politics. I think that it would be hard to put that through. So a, a certain amount of free allocation, I think, might be necessary just to, to get sufficient political support for cap and trade. Eileen, the state of California, I believe, has put 100% auctions as the goal, uh, though I'm not sure there's a time frame on arriving at 100% auctions. Where is, are you in California on the allowances and the auctions issue? 
Well, I think um, as a goal, certainly the state of California in our scoping plan, uh, which is a plan that lays out a, a combination of cap and trade and direct regulations and incentive programs to get us to very stringent emission reductions in the 2020 timeframe, uh, we do say that we think that moving towards full auctioning as quickly as possible is desirable. And that and that's that's a pretty clear policy statement. I think in the context of the Western Climate Initiative, where California has joined a number of Western states as well as um, Canadian provinces to design a regional cap-and-trade program, the Western Climate Initiative design document also says we need to move towards full auction as soon as possible. And so what we what we like to think is that auctioning, beyond just being, um, I think, a, a policy decision that sends us in the right direction, it really is a signal to industry that if you want to save money, if you want to reduce your costs, you got to get in shape. you got to reduce your carbon emissions. So that's part of the reason that we have made that decision in California, in California in the context of the Western Climate Initiative, and then in our work with the other states and regional efforts and even the European Union. So let's follow the money a little bit. Thanks, Eileen. Uh, in terms of, you know, Josh, you mentioned that sort of where the money goes matters in terms of the design and, and the support. Um, numbers that I saw were that President Obama's plan predicted $645 billion into government coffers by 2019, $60 billion tax credits to low- and middle-income um, families, $15 billion for clean energy projects. So pretty small portion of that actually going to what you might say solve the problem. Some of it's going to offset the consequences, and I'm not sure where the other 600 or so, $500 billion, billion goes. So do you have anyone have thoughts about so where the money is going to go under the current design or where it should go? Let's, let's, let's remember the words of Pogo. We have met the enemy, and he is us. Uh, we all have issues. We all have a weight problem. Um, and the, the, the challenge is not to start us off on a starvation diet and then to, to bring us down to that level and expect us to run this marathon with, with no calories. We, we have to gradually reduce our calories. With the European Union, we had, yeah, we had prices that were low, but we also had allocations that were too high. So start off with scarcity. Reduce the allocations. Let's, let's do that. Right, and let's leave the money, talking about the money, in the hands of those who can reinvest it in terms of reducing their emissions and bring those emissions down over time. So what does that mean? Back to companies? Well, funding if, clean companies? if the companies have the allocations, if they're the ones that have a stream of emissions over time, if they can plan on a 30-year horizon, a utility does not plan for one and two years at a shot. They make plans on a 20- and 30-year horizon. If they know that over time, if they make changes as technology improves, if they, if they make, change the fuels, that they can invest and receive the benefits from it's more challenging if I have to buy allowances every year, every single year, year after year. And if I don't know if the government's going to change the program, the government likes to change programs. It's hard for the government, for Eileen to sit here today and say, I promise you your allocations are not going to change over the next 30 years. Or we're going to issue the same amount. We're going to have the same formula. It's hard to do that. Um, it's easier to do that if you have a, a reduction over time similar to the acid rain program, similar to the lead, the lead, the, the lead refining program, to the other uh, cap-and-trade programs that we have some experience with. I think the money should stay with those who have the problem so that they can invest and solve the problem and then benefit from that. So you think those that, in effect, created the problem can solve the problem? Those who created the problem have to solve the problem. They have to reform. They have to shape up. They have to solve the problem themselves. They have to invest inwards to solve that problem. Otherwise, they're going out of business because Eileen is not going to let them stay in business. Eileen, the state of California likes to reward early action, and that is that consistent with what, we're, what Josh is saying? Well, first of all, obviously, the, the state government does not want to force businesses um, out, out of the state, and, and we, in fact, want to encourage new business um, and new business innovation and green jobs in the state, and we believe that a, a lot of these green technologies that are going to be used to meet our very stringent cap are, are going to provide more jobs and higher-paying jobs for people in our state, and we see already the competition with other states 
um, because everybody is is sort of seeing that same message. So I guess um, what I, what I want to say about sort of where the the money should go is that, that is a very complex question and one that we are. Uh, tackling right now. In fact, we're uh, going to pull together a group of economists and business folk to look at and look at and advise if California should auction or the Western Climate Initiative does auction. Um, what? How, how do we spend that revenue in a way that grows our economy and protects those? most affected by not just climate change, but by any potential price increases. So one of the things you saw in Obama's um, statements, and certainly we agree, is that for those most vulnerable in our society, uh, people, low-income folks, we really do not want to raise their energy costs. And so part of our role um, as government in a society is to protect those most vulnerable. And I think that government does that well relative to business in general. I mean, I think businesses have a role in creating jobs and making profits, and they do that very, very well. And government has a role in protecting um, the people and the environment, and we do the best we can. Um, Sometimes we're not perfect. Sometimes businesses aren't perfect. But together, I mean, that's the beauty of a cap-and-trade program is it allows businesses flexibility to reduce their emissions, and it allows government to do what it's best at, which is sort of make sure that there are constraints around the market that, that protect our environment and our economy and the people of our state or our region or our nation. We're discussing Carbon Exchange 101 at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Greg Dalton. We have Josh Margolis, the co-chief executive officer of Cantor CO2E, Eileen Tutt, the deputy secretary of climate change and environmental justice at the California Environmental Protection Agency, and Larry Goulder, professor of environmental resource and economics at Stanford. Larry, you want to jump in on this question? Well, assuming that you have auctioning of some of the allowances, you're going to bring in revenues, and there's basically three things you can do with the revenues. One is to return it to households in the form of rebate checks. Another is to use it to, cu- to pay for tax reductions, uh, either corporate tax reductions or personal tax reductions. And a third is to use the revenue to pay for government projects, such as research uh, and development, uh, to help finance those things. In my view, a mix does make sense. Uh, particularly for the low-income households, as Eileen was suggesting, some kind of direct rebate, I think, is important. And uh, you have to make sure that you reach uh, the lowest-income households, many of whom are not part of the, many of which are not part of the tax system. So uh, there has to be a very uh, judicious way of, of reaching those. In addition, I think some of the revenue should be used to cut uh, tax rates on income taxes, because then you help the economy run better. You reduce the the uh, efficiency losses or the waste that's generated by the tax system, by other taxes. And to the extent that they're particularly promising projects, perhaps environmental projects, that have a very high ratio of benefits to costs. As Josh was indicating, I think it does make sense to use some of the revenues for that purpose. But I think some of the revenues has to be very much devoted to the lowest income households who would otherwise uh, face a disproportionately high impact because they rely so much on fossil fuels because of their inordinate um, reliance on energy as part of their consumption. And you mentioned a tax earlier. We didn't. We kind of skated by the whole the tax question. And I know a tax is not. Uh, it's not a carbon tax or cap and trade. Do you want to address the tax question? Is is this an effect of tax, or would a carbon tax be something different, or, or could it be in addition to complementary to a cap and trade? You mean the difference between cap and trade and, yeah. and a carbon tax? Yeah, there is, a, there is a fundamental difference, and it sort of depends on what uncertainty you consider to be the worst evil. Uh, under cap-and-trade, you set the amount of emissions. The government knows what the emissions are by, by establishing the number of allowances to be issued each year. That controls the emissions. What is uncertain is what price of emissions allowances will result from the market. And we've seen some volatility in the European Union for ex- European Union's emissions trading system. Prices can be volatile. So many in the business community are uneasy with that. They just would rather not have so much uncertainty about allowance prices and, therefore, the prices of goods and services in the economy that that result from that. The alternative, which is a carbon tax, has just the opposite um, uncertainty. Under the carbon tax, what is certain is the price. That's the tax rate. You set the price of emissions. What's uncertain is the amount of emissions that will ultimately be reduced. 
the amount that the emissions will be reduced under the tax. So under cap and trade, what's uncertain is the price of emissions. Under a carbon tax, what's uncertain is the quantity. Environmental groups tend to favor cap and trade because they would rather be certain about the uh, quantity of emissions. Many in the business community would favor a carbon tax because they'd rather know what the price is. And that remains a debatable issue. I would say the cap and trade clearly has the edge now politically, but there are many that are strongly favoring a carbon tax because of the fact that it uh, provides certainty and, and perhaps some stability in terms of the price of emissions. And Eileen, there are some cases where they could be a hybrid model of both cap and trade and a tax. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, in, in, in British Columbia, there is a, a carbon tax on fuel, and British Columbia is a member of our Western Climate Initiative and fully intends to participate in a regional cap-and-trade program. So I think should states or regions or our federal government decide that a carbon tax should be part of the overall plan to reduce emissions, that does not rule out a cap-and-trade program. They can actually be complementary to each other. So I think that it there's this sort of false dichotomy that we have to choose between a carbon tax or a cap-and-trade program or direct regulations or incentive programs and in fact, if we're going to achieve these ambitious reductions that we need, 80-plus percent reduction from a 1990-level baseline by 2050, which is where the science tells us we need to go to protect the planet, then we need every single tool on the table. And, we, and they, they, they are not – it's not an either-or. It's, it's, it's and. It's all of them. I think on that score, I would differ. That is, I very much agree that – Direct regulation, such as efficiency standards or the low-carbon fuel standard, can very much be alongside cap-and-trade or a carbon tax. But I think it is somewhat redundant to have both a carbon tax and cap-and-trade because they have such similar functions that they would be kind of redundant working alongside each other. And, in fact, some people would argue that if you have a carbon trading program that has a carbon uh, auction scheme attached to it, many in the business community would say that effectively is cap-and-tax. Right? Others would disagree. Well, if I could just clarify one thing, and that is that there can be a carbon tax on a, on entities that are not under the cap-and-trade program, mm-hmm. and that is one way that a carbon tax could work with a cap-and-trade. Okay. That's not the only way, in my okay. opinion. So I think Larry and I still differ. Okay. But on, on, on one level, I just don't want to take any of the tools out of the toolbox because we have a, a daunting challenge in front of us, and we need them all. Yeah, 90% reduction as compared to... Uh, 2050 uh, emission, but as compared to 1990 emission levels, you know, that's that's a the vision is massive, and, and, and as some planners would say, a vision without the resources is merely a hallucination. Right. We, we need the resources to solve the problem, and we need everybody to to grab all oars and, and come on deck and help solve the problem. We're going to go in just a few minutes to audience questions, so I think if you'd like to to go to the microphones, we're going to go to that. Uh, Before we do, let's address the question of sort of of measurement and verification. How do we know that these promised cuts are actually actually happening? Josh, you've laid out these massive goals, uh, and the public is being asked to to support something that's very new and complex. Um, How do we know that they're going to be achieving their intended consequences? The, the agency, the Air Resources Board, the EPA, plays, I think, a fundamental role in setting the baseline and saying, here, who, these folks, these entities, these industry sectors are contributing to our challenge. And those folks need to step it up and understand that the, the, the world that they knew that got them here is going to change ever so slightly as we pursue this green revolution. And let's not kid ourselves. Let's understand that this green revolution is going to have some blood attached to it, that there are are some things that we do that we're not going to be able to do anymore. Such as? Such as uh, use use carbon-based fuels without understanding that there's a cost consequence. The externalities are going to be internalized. Uh, When you turn on your car and you decide to drive across the Golden Gate Bridge alone, uh, and uh, go into con- the congestion zone of upper uh, mid-Manhattan or in the financial district of San Francisco, there's going to be a cost consequence. On this Sorry. issue of whether we know that we're, that, this, that we're getting the reductions, I think that there's reason to be very optimistic, provided you actually introduce the cap-and-trade system. Because each entity has to submit at the end of the compliance period, for example, each year, um, has to indicate uh, what its emissions are and whether they are within... Uh, the amount that's dictated by the amount of allowances that that entity holds. And it's easy to verify in the case of of, of carbon dioxide 
whether that's the case, because we can relate the amount of carbon dioxide emissions to, for example, the fuels that are used by different entities. There's a, there's a clear proportionality that can be used. So that uh, compliance is really, I think, not an issue. And if a particular entity ends up emitting too much, there are strong fines that would be introduced as part of the system. And we have found in the U.S. in other cap-and-trade systems, such as in sulfur dioxide emissions trading for coal-fired power plants in the Midwest, or in the reclaim market in Los Angeles area for uh, SOx emissions and nitrogen oxides, there, were significant, there was really very good compliance and significant cost reductions. It's not just an academic issue. It's estimated, for example, in the reclaim market that the costs were reduced by over 40% relative to what it would have been the case if one had relied entirely on conventional regulation. Larry Goulder is a professor of environmental and resource economics at Stanford University. We're discussing Carbon Exchange 101 at the Commonwealth Club. A uh, couple of months ago here on this stage, Fred Smith, the founder and chairman of Federal Express, uh, said that cap and trade can be gamed, it can be lobbied. Uh, he came out in favor of, of a carbon tax. So, Josh Margolis, what do you say to people who are concerned uh, about the integrity of trading something uh, such as so, so abstract and complex as, as carbon emissions and whether it's, it'll be a, a, another gamed market? Get it right in the first place. Get, understand that the rules have to be simple and clear, that the regulator has to have absolute authority to define who gets what, what the rules are, what the, and how the trades are being monitored to make sure that we do have annual reconciliations or regular reconciliations, and understand that the cost consequence of noncompliance is far greater than complying. There has to be, before you trade, before you decide to comply, you have to know as a businessman uh, that it will be more costly to not comply. And then you have to see examples of people who have violated and suffered those cost consequences. We, in the acid rain program, we have nearly 100% compliance, I think, th- throughout every single year. Uh, in the lead refining program, we have the same. In other examples, we have the same. So in terms of making sure that it's not gamed, make sure the rules are clear, that the allocations are clear, the cost consequences and the, the, the regulatory consequences of noncompliance are clear and painful. Yeah, the past track record suggests that there's been very little effective gaming. I think it, uh, that's cause for optimism. Well, those of us who lived through the energy crisis in California, in fact, I would mention that also on this stage a few years ago, Jeff Skilling got a pie in his face, uh, this former CEO of Enron. Those of us who lived through the brownouts of 2001 and the partial deregulation of electricity markets in, in California would say the record may not be so strong or clear in terms of uh, creating, deregulating, or that was a new market that didn't work out so well. Do you think we've learned our lessons from that? Well, I would say that we've learned our lessons from that and as well as many other of our, of our efforts to create markets, not just markets in the financial sense, but also carbon markets. I mean, we're learning mm-hmm. from the EU, from the European Union. We're learning from our friends in the Northeast. Uh, I think that having a very strong understanding of exactly what the emissions are is absolutely critical, but also having a very strong enforcement arm is very incri- very critical, and that is the role, as, as Josh pointed out earlier, of government to be sort of the enforcer and the and make sure that we that we really understand what those emissions are. And I want to point out here that gaming and cheating is not just doesn't just apply to carbon markets or markets in general, regulations, incentive programs, all of taxes, all of these things. I I believe we've heard of people cheating on their taxes and those kinds of things. So it's not as if there's any system that will reduce emissions that's foolproof. Our job as regulators is to make it as ironclad as possible, and I believe that we can do that in a cap-and-trade program, particularly if we learn from the mistakes of the past and we continue to refine and we pay attention to what's going on, which is what, you know, particularly we in California do quite well. Eileen Tutt is the Deputy Secretary of Climate Change and Environmental Justice at the California EPA. We're discussing carbon exchange at the Commonwealth Club. Let's go to an audience question. I'm Adam Stern with TerraPass in San Francisco. Quick question about financial markets and confidence in those markets, which have clearly suffered in recent years. Which government entities, either at the federal or state level, do you think are best positioned to regulate the financial trading of emission credits, and how do you see that fitting into this overall program, whether it be through the Waxman Bill or any other legislation? Who should be the carbon cop? Well, and this is Eileen Tutt. I think that depends uh, 
on where, you know, where the carbon market is, if it's in California versus in the region versus um, the nation as a whole. And I think one of the things that we're still struggling with in California and as a region is what is the body that regulates a market? And so that's something that's less clear in the in a state and a regional sense, although we are looking at it and we're working with our attorneys general's office, both in our state and throughout the region. I would say at the federal level, it's more clear. There is a treasury department. There is a, a you know, a department that really does oversee carbon markets. And so I, at least from the outside looking in, I mean, for the, from the state looking up to the federal government, it looks like the Treasury Department would be the place where the, where the actual market would be regulated. But even that, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. I think at the end of the day, what we know if for absolute sure is that that government will enforce and government will regulate, and, and the, the penalties are, go beyond just uh, environmental penalties. We're talking about financial penalties, which tend to be um, much more stringent. Josh Margolis? When you hear this discussion um, in circles today, it's oftentimes portrayed between a discussion. Uh, it's either the CFTC or the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Um, that would be the Commodity Futures and Trading, Trading Commission. Commission. Uh, thank you. Um, and uh, I think I'm more interested, frankly, in the competence of the fellow who carries the card rather than what the, lo- what the logo is. Um, and in other words, I'm interested in getting the best and the brightest from what we have now in the Air Resources Board and the EPA. Look at the, the, the fantastic job that the EPA has done with respect to administering the acid rain program. And what little resources they have, and what little, what few scan- I don't know of any scandals that have occurred with respect to the acid rain program that even uh, compare to those that uh, that some of the, that you've seen in the headlines uh, elsewhere. So, uh, I, I, I'd like to broaden the discussion. It's not just CFTC, FERC. I think EPA, I think the Air Resources Board ought to be brought into the picture, and we ought to look for competence. And it's better to have a single entity managing the whole market rather than two different entities where we can have things fall between the cracks, you know, where we have, where we give people two different sets of rules, where, where the regulator says, this is my problem, not yours, and the guy says, okay, fine, I'm not going to ignore it, then, then we have an opportunity for, for somebody to fall asleep at the switch or saying, that's not my switch. So single entity, EPA, uh, let's bring, bring in the best and the brightest. Eileen, do you agree with that? California willing to give up some of its regulatory... Uh, oversight in a, in a federal system. Well, if I heard Josh feds? right, he said he mentioned our Air Resources Board. So mm-hmm. I, th- <laughs> I think, <laughs> yeah. I think that actually he's his he's he's his uh, point is very well taken in that um, it it will take. We do need to look at the person who is holding the card, so to speak. So it it it. Whether or not it's the U.S. EPA or it's the Air Resources Board in a California-only market, or there's some effort where the Air Resources Board provides data to the US EPA and that data is used to enforce. I mean these are things that are going to have to be worked out and, and it is going to be a challenge, but I think ultimately everybody agrees that we do need a very strong enforcement arm as part of a, a market that instills confidence. Sure. Larry? In a way we have the embarrassment of riches. I mean the states became the leaders in climate policy, the Northeast, California, now the Western states, even the uh, central states as well because there was very little action on the, at the federal level. Now that the federal level is, be, is beginning to get involved and may in fact introduce a federal cap-and-trade bill, a new problem existed that wasn't even imaginable before, which is how do you reconcile the state-level efforts with the federal level? And should, for example, California just dispose of its cap-and-trade system at the time that a federal system comes into play? That's still a very contentious issue, one that I think is going to be debated for a long time. And, uh, you know, in some ways, it, you know, it looks very nice, as Josh indicates, to have one regulator, if it's at federal level, just have it be at federal level uh, and have no, nothing at the state level. On the other hand, several states like California would like to go further than what's likely to happen at the federal level. So I think this is going to remain a, a very difficult challenge. But in a way, again, it's the embarrassment of riches because they, they, it implies it, it, it results from having more climate policy than was really conceivable just a few years ago. Let's take another audience question. Hey there. Um, I've heard that preserving forests, and particularly rainforests, is a very effective way of combating uh, climate change. Do cap-and-trade programs kind of allow for extra emissions credits for preserving forests? And if they do, I mean, does that kind of like screw up the price of the 
emissions credits because there'd be a glut of them, because there'd be, you know, the allowances plus, you know, every other forest in the world would kind of allow for extra credits on the market? Larry? That's a really important issue, and I think what you're alluding to is a potential offset program, which would accompany a cap-and-trade program. That is, to the extent that uh, a firm or a, a facility can invest in a forest project which expands forest area and thus ends up causing biological sequestration of carbon, soaking up of carbon, it could get credit for that, that effect on the atmosphere, just as if it reduced its own emissions. In principle, it's a great idea. I think everyone likes the idea of offsets. You widen the scope of opportunities for reducing atmospheric concentrations. The real challenge with offsets is verification, making sure that the, the projects for which you get credit are projects that are additional, that is, wouldn't have otherwise been undertaken, so that they constitute a real additional effect uh, in terms of, of, of dealing with climate change. And uh, the Air Resources Board in California, as well as uh, the various uh, bills that are being uh, now articulated at the federal level, they try to introduce strict procedures to make sure that these offsets, these forest projects, are real and verifiable and additional. There's no perfect way to do it. Uh, there's some evidence that some of the kind of projects that have been introduced as offsets under the clean development mechanism under the Kyoto Protocol were, in fact, bogus projects. But in this case, I think we don't want the perfect to be the enemy of the good, that having offsets, I think, is overall a very good thing, and there's going to be some mistakes made, but overall it can help get the cost down. Yes, sir. Um, a question on data. I just appreciate each of you commenting on, and I'm certainly not looking for any precision here, but understanding of two things. Uh, number one, what is the approximate mix in the atmosphere of greenhouse gases? For example, I just read something the other day that, uh, was talking about uh, water vapor being the biggest component. But just un interested in your understanding of the basic composition within the atmosphere of greenhouse gases, number one, and, and obviously what percent carbon might be of that. And then number two, um, what's your understanding of the percent of that which is man-made versus natural? We don't have a climate scientist here, but anyone want to, want to take a swing at that, Larry? Well, in terms of atmospheric concentrations, it's true that water vapor represents a huge proportion, much larger than the greenhouse gases. But water vapor isn't considered a greenhouse gas or an anthropogenically sourced gas. So it's, it's usually kept, seen as separate from the greenhouse gas um, uh, uh, accounting. Um, <laughs> in terms of the question as to how much of what we have seen uh, in terms of global climate change, and we, we've clearly seen a tendency toward warming. That, that's virtually in, indisputable. How much of that is due to human activities versus is due to natural variation? Uh, I can only um, invoke uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which convenes about every five years respected scientists, natural scientists, um, technologists, social scientists, about 300 to 400 every five years to try to uh, declare what is known. And the IPCC increasingly has stated that a significant contribution to climate change is anthropogenic, that is human-caused. I think any good scientist will tell you there's a lot of uncertainty there. But now I think the scientists have, do, do generally speak with one voice that there is a human contribution. If there wasn't, clearly, then uh, it would be much harder to justify taking action to reduce CO2, for example. But I think there still, despite all the uncertainties, is enough evidence that it's worth taking action. And in relation to a question that was asked before, of course mistakes can be made. The regulators may get it wrong. We may end up having too stringent a policy or too weak a policy. But I think the important thing is to do something now as a kind of insurance and then to build into the policies, uh, into the plan, uh, the provisions for changing the stringency of the policy over time as more scientific information arises. But the existence of uncertainty, to me, doesn't justify inaction. To me, it, it justifies taking some action, which then can be adjusted as more information comes, comes about. We're discussing Carbon Exchange 101 at the Commonwealth Clubs and Forum. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's go to another question from the audience. Hi. Um, I find it uh, touching that the panel has so much faith that there won't be gaming in the system. I'm wondering if you live in the real world. Um, in the last couple of years, we've seen uh, some ill-considered changes in financial regulation lead to massive uh, d uh, destruction of the, of the financial system uh, and uh, where greed just over overwhelmed the whole system. 
And so how are you going to be able to be sure that you've got a handle on the big bulk of the emissions when you're, when you're handing out credits, which has to be a finite number? I mean, how, how, it's just a massive uh, counting problem, isn't it? Larry? Well, I have two, Josh, so. two responses. I mean, we don't want to be naive, clearly. But I think that history offers some clues. And as, as Josh was indicating, the sulfur dioxide Midwest uh, trading program, the acid rain program, was a very big success, remains a big success. Similarly, the reclaim program, which has had its ups and downs, is now considered to be working very well. Um, so uh, I, th I think that's some cause for optimism. If there's gaming, and perhaps there is some, it hasn't been enough to uh, completely cause things to unravel. Um, Oh, and then in terms of the number of entities involved, um, you're right. There will be more entities involved under a climate program than under the old cap-and-trade systems for sulfur dioxide or local pollutants. However, if you introduce the system upstream, that is closer to the source of carbon in the economy, such as uh, moderately upstream and under the Waxman-Markey bill, this is what's proposed, introduce it at the level of refiners and electric power plants, and natural gas distribution companies, then, in fact, you're capturing all the carbon that enters the economy. It affects what happens downstream. And the number of entities is kept pretty small. It's about one order of magnitude, not several orders of magnitude. It'd be in, in, in maybe a couple thousand entities as opposed to a couple hundred. I think that's still manageable. In some ways, more is better because the more entities you have, the less possibility that any entity is going to be, have a strategic effect on the whole market. So I think it's doable, but I would be uh, unwise to say there won't be problems that occur. One thing we're sure about is that there will be some, some surprises. You should be concerned about whether or not there will be gaming of the system. You should be concerned about whether or not people are going to comply. And you should insist that the government establish clear, consistent rules and rules with, with teeth in terms of whether or not what happens if there's noncompliance. But you should also ask yourself, if not this, then what? Let's think about the history that we have so far. In 1970, we, we decided that the ozone was a problem. And we decided that we were going to clean up our act and, and bring our, uh, our nation's air back into attainment with the ozone standards in five years. In five years. 34 years after the first non-attainment deadline, we still have 47 non-attainment areas. Yes, we've had fantastic progress. We've, we've reduced the, the emissions from cars tremendously. We've reduced emissions from factories. But we still have problems. We, given how close the tipping point is, we can't afford to make a choice and say we're only going to go with a non-market-based program. We need a program that has a firm cap, that has uh, clear deadlines, and that has clear consequences for non-compliance. And if you gain the system, you're going to get nailed. Next question from the audience. Okay. What I wanted to ask both Mr. Goulder and the rest of the panel is what mechanisms are being considered and are likely to be effective for handling the economy-environment interface of job losses and job transfer if one nation decides to regulate and then other nations are more lax about carbon and how the global effects can still be mitigated under that circumstance. I think we can address that question at two levels. I mean, this is a global problem. And if we were able at some point to address it globally such that all countries are involved in it, that solves a lot of problems in that it reduces, it levels the playing field. It reduces incentives for firms to migrate out, for jobs to be lost in those regions which are introducing the tough policies for them to move out to those regions where the policies aren't being introduced. That's not happening yet. I mean, that's an ultimate goal is to have a global approach to this global problem. As long as that's not happening, you're going to have these challenges of firms moving out, of leakage, of migration, and uh, anti the competitiveness impacts. Eileen may probably is more familiar with this than I now, but how California has aimed to deal with this issue is to try to consider, well, excuse me, I think a better example would be at the federal level. The Waxman-Markey bill tries to deal with this issue by uh, allowing for border taxes. That is, imports from countries that are not introducing comparable regulations on carbon and thus would have a competitive advantage would be taxed under the Waxman-Markey bill so as to keep the, the, um, the playing field level. Now, that's a stopgap, and it also, uh, there are many would say that's in violation with the World Trade Organization. Prior to this panel, I 
tried to look up and see what the current thinking is on this, and it seems that there's still divided views among the legal, uh, legal scholars as to whether that's feasible. But that's at least one approach that's being taken uh, at the federal level. We are out of time. Josh Margolis, you want to get the last word? The, the problem that we're discussing is so massive that we have to, we can't rely upon uh, a, a single solution, a single nation, a, a single uh, way of looking at this to, to, solve the, to solve the problem. We have to, it's all hands on deck. Rich nations can't do it by ourselves. We can't solve the problem. We have to lead the other nations. We have to help them avoid making other mistakes. But uh, we spilled the milk. We created a problem. We have to solve it now. That concludes our program by the Commonwealth Clubs and Forum tonight discussing Carbon Exchange 101. Our guests have been Larry Goulder, Professor of Environmental and Resource Economics at Stanford University, Eileen Tut, Deputy Secretary of the California EPA, and Josh Margolis, Co-CEO of Cantor CO2E. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club, and now this meeting is adjourned.